Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, June 27th, 2022. And of course, the headlines are dominated by, you know what, the Supreme Court decision. Uh, New York Times leads with a story about the unleashing of, and I, and I use this word carefully, it's their word, frenzy of activity on both sides of the abortion fright, I think. Uh, I said fright, it's fight, of course. Um, this is a frenzy, a frenzy of gender discussion, gender disagreement, perhaps even according to some gender violence. Um, the Wall Street Journal, which I think is probably secretly rather pleased with the decision, or perhaps not so secretly, suggests that the abortion providers need to confront what they call new landscape, lots of interesting uses of words. Um, the political landscape certainly is changing. The Post reports that Mike Pence looks as if he's probably going to run in 2024 on an anti-abortion platform, which presumably would result in a rather interesting conversation with or debate with uh, Donald Trump. Um, lots of talk about how uh, um, this decision by the Supreme Court has turned, according to the Washington Post, the United States into a cautionary tale on gender and gendered rights. We've been doing quite a lot of shows, actually, on gender. Did a wonderful show, I thought, over the weekend with the English writer, feminist writer, Catherine Angel, on making the argument that the only way uh, for girls to grow up is by taking sec sexual risks, and that means that... Um, they need to have the right to abortion. But certainly the debates are incredibly divisive. In my sense, there are two Americas now, very clearly two Americas, particularly in this area. Lots of images of critics of the Supreme Court decision and then supporters, both young women, but divided enormously. Um, today we're going to talk about gender in a divided America uh, with an author, uh, Kate Mangino, um, she is, I'm not sure if she's comfortable with this term, um, she is a, a gender expert, um, she's from Columbus, Ohio, but she's lucky enough to be in Costa Rica at the moment, where she's talking to us. She has a new book out, Equal Partners, Improving Gender Equality at Home, and as I said, uh, Kate is joining us from San Jose in Costa Rica. Kate. Uh, you have a little bit of distance physically, geographically from the United States. What's your sense of what has happened over the last few days in terms of gender? I mean, I'm not sure how much you deal with it in your new book, Equal Partners, but it certainly touches on it in enormous ways. I mean, the issue of abortion obviously is, is one of the central issues and debates within gender in America in 2022. Um, well, first of all, thank you for having me on, Andrew. I'm a big fan of your show. And um, I think that what happened on Friday and over the weekend is not surprising, uh, disappointing from my personal perspective. Not surprising. I feel like we've had two Americas for a while, and it's getting harder and harder to find issues where everyone can come together. Um, 
I think gender can be one of those issues in a certain lens, perhaps uh, a, a Pew survey that I think is from 2021. So fairly recent said that, you know, Americans poll around 79% in favor of gender equality. So big picture, I think the vast majority of Americans are behind gender equality, but how that is implemented and practiced, I think is where it gets lost in the divide. What, what do you think that word means, gender equality? As I said, your, your new book, um, uh, Folk Equal Partners Improving Gender Equality at Home, uh, the book list said that it, it's built on dismantling the gender binary. Um, your publisher talks of, describes it as an informed guide about how we can all collectively work to undo harmful gender norms and create greater household equity. I'm assuming that for you, all gender norms are harmful. Is that fair? I don't know if I'd say they're all harmful. Um, I think they can all be uh, limiting, certainly not harmful. I think gender norms push us to behave in a certain way because we are female or male. Um, and I do think that they are restrictive, if not always harmful. Coming back to this, this book, um, Equal Partners Improving Gender Equality at Home. I know you have written a very personal book. It, it's, it's not just a, a kind of manual for gender equality. It's very much built around your own narrative as a mother and as a wife. Why did you feel it was important to make this so personal, this book? Um, it's interesting that you say that because I feel like I took a lot of the personal um, out during the editing process because I didn't want this to be a memoir or to feel like a memoir. I really wanted it to be reflective of our culture and really put the focus on the men that I interviewed for this book, which we can talk about if you're interested. The I interviewed 40 men who are already living as equal partners. I nicknamed them the EP40 just for a shortcut of language. But it is personal. It's um, it's something that because because the topic is personal, because even though it might be something that many of us are experiencing and so it's a widespread issue, we all have a very personal connection to it. And I decided to write the book. I've been doing gender work for years. I've been a facilitator of groups talking about gender issues and tackling gender norms. And I was finding that I was having terribly sophisticated conversations about gender with groups of men in Indonesia and groups of health workers in Zambia and very old fashioned conversations about gender in my own community. And um, my oldest is now 11. And when she was a baby, I could very quickly and clearly see that people had different expectations of my husband than they had of me. And so this book, in many ways, is a reconciliation of my professional life and my personal life. Uh, one of the things that intrigued me um, that, that you write is you, you say, I think we need to think differently about men as partners and fathers and stop putting limits on male capacity. Anything else is ironically patronizing. Are you suggesting that gendered stereotypes in many ways are as patronizing towards men as they are towards women? A hundred percent. That's exactly what I believe. I think that we, people don't, might not say that old trope boys will be boys out loud anymore, but we've sort of um, internalized that 
attitude about boys and men. And I think there's a lot of excusing boys um, from, you know, maybe lowering our standards, lowering our expectations. Uh, they're not, they're not good enough. They're not capable. They're not great multitaskers. I mean, we've all heard these things before. And I think it is patronizing. I mean, who would, you know, would any, would any man sitting in a C-suite, you know, tell, tell someone that they're not capable of managing a, a household project? I mean, I just think that we need to maybe align our expectations for fathers and mothers and men and women in a more equitable fashion. I had it, my, my son recently, this, this is a personal story, but he's not been great about pitching in with cleaning this summer since he's been off school. And I had a conversation with him just last night, sort of a heart to heart. And, you know, do you know what mom writes about and why is it important? And, and he said, Oh mom, I'm not, not cleaning because I'm a boy. It's just because I'm lazy, <laughs> which I thought was a brilliant um, rebuttal from him. But at the same time I said, okay, but we've excused laziness for a long time. And I think that you can do a lot more. So let's talk about what you can do. And I thought it was actually a great jumping off point for that conversation. Yeah, you got an interesting piece, uh, Kate, about how we need to teach our girls to embrace boys' vulnerabilities is one of the themes in your book. Mm -hmm. um, do boys need girls to embrace this? Is it sisters, mothers? grandmothers how does it work i think it, i think it's it it helps if we all embrace that so if we're talking about revising masculinity if we're talking about embracing a broader definition of masculinity than we've had in past generations that you don't have to be stoic to be masculine you don't have to be um you know that that uh emotionless right that if you are an emotional guy that doesn't make you any less of a man than your stoic grandfather. If we're rewriting these norms around masculinity and men and what we expect and what we embrace, then I think we're starting to have some great conversations with our boys about there's lots of different ways that you can be a man and they're all okay. Um, you don't have to reach this sort of cinematic stereotype. Um, at the same time, and this article again came from a personal experience where my son wore uh, a pink mask to school. This was, you know, during the pandemic when everyone first went back to school. And he was kind of bracing himself and preparing himself for boys making fun of him. And he actually, in his head, had kind of a comeback for that. But it was actually the girls in his class that started to make fun of him um, for wearing pink. And his teacher had to step in. He was in first grade at the time. So it was helpful to have that teacher step in. But I just think it's something that you know, I think sometimes we can be pushed into gender stereotypes by our own gender, as well as the opposite sex. And so it's helpful to have these conversations. Like I, I talk about women's empowerment with my son, and I think we should talk about boys' vulnerability with our girls. Okay, we had a, an interesting show a few months ago with a writer, Justin Guest, the author of Majority Minority. It's a political book, and he talks about avoiding civil war in America by creating a post-racial civic identity. America, particularly this week, seems to be teetering on civil war. Do you think this needs to be avoided by creating a post-gendered civic identity? Do you think that gendered identity is one of the, the areas where America is flirting with civil war? 
Yes, I would agree with that statement. This is one of the areas where America is flirting with civil war. And I think that, again, what I would love to do is focus on our commonalities, going back to that Pew survey, the people who believe that gender equality is a core value. Let's go back to what that means and what that looks like and build off of it. Um, unfortunately, I see, um, you know, the conversation around um, trans people, for example, as being extremely polarized. So I, um, I have days where I feel really hopeful and I have days where I feel very pessimistic, as I'm sure you do and everyone else, no matter what side you're on. Let's go back, Kate, to that Pew survey. I have to admit I'm not familiar with it. Okay. It, it sounds, I have to admit, a little suspicious to me. Okay. 79% of Americans are supportive of gendered equality. I mean, it depends what you mean. It's such a, it's such a plastic, meaningless term. It depends who's using it in one context. Yep. In, in terms of that particular survey, did they explain what they meant by it? They were really looking at women's equality. So are, do you believe in women's equality in terms of gender equality? Do you believe that women should have access to the same rights and privileges as men? But then that's astonishing that 20% thought that what women shouldn't have the vote. So that's um, really, a, it's not a particularly helpful number because your argument is a cultural argument about <laughs> men and women being treated differently, not formally under the law. Well, that's why I, I, I agree with you that these, um, uh, these quantitative surveys are often not, they're, they're a great starting point for a conversation. But I think when you're digging through gender norms and any kind of cultural norm, it really, it needs to be a conversation and it needs to be a series of conversations. It's not something that's just going to get solved once, whether you're talking about a couple or a family or friends or a group. It needs to be ongoing. You need to create the space to ask questions. You need to create the space to question your own background, your own biases, your own hangups, hear others' perspectives. I, um, I'm a facilitator by training. That's what I do professionally. And I, I wrote the book as sort of a facilitator guide for one, because I was trying to create questions and background and scenarios where readers could sort of create the space for themselves. And if they choose so, a family member or a friend, to think through this on a little bit deeper level. So I think it's a good starting point. You know, I would, you know, if you had a group of people in a room, I would say, okay, let's look at this Pew statistic. And then let's say, how would you define gender equality? If you agreed with this, what does that mean to you? And that's a great place to start a conversation. You described yourself uh, as a gender facilitator. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? What do you do? Who pays you to do what? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, uh, I am paid by nonprofit organizations. I work with international in the international development industry. I worked full time for many years for, for various organizations. And now I am a consultant simply because a lot of organizations can't afford to keep full time gender people on their payroll. Um, and I'm hired to do specific projects. So when you're doing a social change project in the field, you... Um, obviously, there should be an advocacy angle to it so that there should be some sort of advocacy with the end goal of policy change. But then you also have the side of it around 
uh, social change. And so that's all about information campaigns, bringing communities together, having conversations, um, working with champions and thought leaders and helping them to grow their own communities. Um, so whenever I'm hired, it's always to deal with a specific technical issue. For example, right now I'm working with um, a project in Mauritania around women's um, agricultural production. I'm working with um, a group in Bangladesh around teacher trainers. Um, I've worked uh, recently with a group in Malawi around um, curbing forced and early childhood marriage. So all of the technical issues are different, but they always boil down to gender norms and coming together and thinking about, okay, why are girl children pushed into early marriage? What norms do we have around girls and around boys that are leading us to do this? I'm guessing, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm guessing that most of the people who are going to read this book are not going to be in Malawi. Uh, no. They're going to be probably mostly in the United States, perhaps some in Western Europe. What are you trying to tell Americans in particular about this? We did a show recently with a young novelist, Chandler Baker. She has a new novel out, uh, The Husbands, and she joked or half-joked that the good husband should always carry the laundry upstairs. What are you trying to teach men in particular, men in the West, men who, for one reason or other, aren't carrying the laundry upstairs? Is that the goal here? Um, sure. I mean, that's not the end goal, but that's one. Well, I that. I'm not suggesting it's just about that. But is it really about tasks around the home? It's I mean, more it's more than tasks. Physical tasks are one piece of it. Um, I talk a lot about cognitive labor and I like the term. I, some people really push away from that. Emotional burden is probably used more commonly, but I don't think emotional burden really sums up what's happening. Cognitive labor is all of the anticipate. It's project management. It's the anticipating. It's the decision making. It's the research. It's the monitoring and evaluating that um, people do in the household all the time in order for households to run, whether it's around childcare or upkeep or cooking or, or laundry. Um, and what I have found is that the term toxic masculinity has become overused and extremely popular. I'm not a huge fan of it. I understand it has a place. Um, but if we only talk about what men are doing wrong, I think that we're missing out on a really important conversation because I think many men are doing things that are right, but um, they're not being written about necessarily. And I like the term aspirational masculinity um, Ron McPherson coined that term in his book, uh, You Throw Like a Girl. And um, sorry, Don McPherson, I'm so sorry. And um, I think aspirational masculinity is something that is worth talking about. And so instead of focusing on what some men do wrong, I reached out, I identified and, and worked with these 40 men who are equal partners to say, where did you come from? Why do you believe what you believe? And what's your motivation? And what do you get out of happiness equal partnership relationship. And I think those are the stories that um, haven't we haven't heard enough of them yet. What did you most learn from these conversations? We did a show um, late last week with Alison Fairbrother, another young American novelist. Uh, she has a new book out, The Catch, lovely book. And it's mm -hmm. about her relationship. And it's sort of, it's fiction, but it's based, I think, in some ways on fact. Uh, on her relationship with her complex father. And she figured out that growing up meant both understanding her father and growing apart from her father. 
other problems that you've seen in terms of your conversation, your neuroanalysis about these narrowly gendered roles, which are so problematic, are they mostly learned from parents, particularly from fathers and mothers? Well, particularly from fathers, of course. I think they can be. So um, from the 40 men that I talked to, many of them came, only two of them, three had um, fathers who role model gender equality from in their whole lifetime. The vast majority of them had very troubled relationships with their father. Some of them were mended and into adulthood, you know, which I think is just also around the, we're just talking about gender differently. We are now than say we did in the seventies and eighties and nineties. Um, several of them came from violent homes um, and homes of abuse. And so uh, I think what I've learned is that um, having a strong relationship that men, when men have strong relationships with their father, that's hugely beneficial, but the absence of that does not necessarily um, predestine him to repeat history, if that makes sense, that it's definitely a fantastic step in, towards leading towards gender equality. But I also, you know, there were so many men in my small subset that came from really difficult childhoods and specifically difficult relationships with their father. And they were still over, able to overcome that and have really meaningful relationships with their partner and their children. And not all of my partners are in different sex marriages. Um, five of them were in a relationship with a man and 35 of them in a relationship with a woman. What about you, you raised the issue of transgender earlier. What does that do to this whole conversation? We did a show last year with Paula Stone Williams, um, uh, she has a book out as a woman, she transitioned from a man to a woman. What I learned about power, sex and the patriarchy after I transitioned, um, the, the trans community is quite controversial on lots of levels, even in terms of its relationship with the, the gay community. How does the trans issue change what you're arguing about in equal partners, given that your arguments are about gender equality and of course, trans gets beyond gender in many ways. I think that trans and non-binary uh, people are a big part of this conversation. And it's the reason why in my book, I use the term male role and female role as opposed to using just men and women. And I fully admit the language gets a little clunky and some people don't like it. And I'm, I own that. But I made that decision specifically because I think we often fall back on just using the terms men and women. But what we have seen, what data is showing us is that even those same sex couples might be big picture more equal than different sex couples, we still see one person specializing in household and one person specializing in income generation or work. And so in that way, our social structure is actually changing individual relationships, even when it's a same sex or queer relationship. So I think that we need to you know, just broaden our definition of couple, broaden thinking about female-coded female roles and male-coded male roles because, you know, there you can switch. I mean, I, I've interviewed couples where the person who's a man is playing a role of a cognitive labor and vice versa. I talk to same-sex relationships where they follow that sort of gender divide. Um, I have one of the equal partners that transitioned and is now a woman. Uh, and that happened between our first interview and when the book was published. So I think that 
gender fluidity has to be something that we talk about more when we discuss household parity. This issue of flu fluidity, of course, is particularly um, relevant in our COVID and post-COVID world of flexible work. Do you think that everything is becoming more fluid? It's no coincidence that just as gendered roles in the family now are up for grabs, being thought about critically by, by writers like yourself. People are rethinking work, politics, roles in every aspect of society. I think it is a time of questioning. It's a time of questioning. It's a time of exploration. It's a time of, you know, did we really just do the status quo for this long without thinking about it? I mean, so many of us learned, you know, five years ago, CEOs would have said, absolutely, I cannot run my business from home. That's ridiculous. And now we did it and we proved that we can do it. I think sometimes when we're forced into these different situations, we learn what we're really capable of. One of my equal partners is married to a um, nurse. And when she is on duty, I believe she works three 12 hour shifts a week. And when she's on duty, he, unless someone is going to the ER themselves, they're not, he's not really permitted to reach out to her. And so he said, I didn't ever think that I was going to be on my own for three days every week when I had these tiny children, but that's just what my life has come to. And it's taught me how to be an equal partner. It's taught me how to anticipate what needs we're going to have on those days that I'm myself. It helps me to know I can reach the pediatrician just as easily as my wife can. I know every aspect of my kid's life and I can be a full parent um, on those three days a week when she's out of the house. I think sometimes when we're put in difficult situations, we learn what we're really capable of doing. And that's kind of led to all of us questioning yeah. Why, why is it that we do things the way we do? And is there room for something different? It seems as if, Kate, the foundations of your argument are not rooted in some f philosophical language of justice, but more of equality. You suggest that we're all happier if we can get beyond these gendered roles, mm -hmm. uh, both men and women. Perhaps you might say something about that, about the, the, the utilitarian foundations of, of your argument, that if we can get to becoming equal partners, we're simply going to be a happier society, happier individuals, happier marriages, happier families. I think there is obviously a justice angle and a justice argument, but you're right. I focus more on a utilitarian argument. And the reason why is because this argument hasn't been working <laughs> so well the last few decades. And because the, the equality argument is newer, we have new data that's just come, it's just emerged in the last five to 10 years about the benefits to men when they share in caregiving roles, when they share in household role, when they have deeper relationships with children and spouses and friends and family, when they are able to articulate and express feelings. We have now have a whole new body of research that shows benefits to men. And you know, along those lines, when I first started interviewing people for this book, goodness, three years ago now, one of the questions I would ask, I was kind of based, basing my initial protocol on um, Cannell's work. Raywin Cannell is an Australian um, uh, masculinity specialist, and she writes about the patriarchal dividend. And I was sort of using that theory in my protocol and saying, why do you turn away the patriarchal dividend? Why are you willing to give something up? 
And very quickly, I was corrected, quickly and strongly, I was corrected in saying, no, 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 I'm not giving anything up. I'm not sacrificing. I am benefiting that this living my way, this way, living my life this way is selfish because I have a great relationship with my partner. I have an amazing relationship with my kids. I'm happier. I can be myself. I don't have to perform masculinity for anyone. Um, I have a safe space. And so I very quickly changed my protocol to talk about what motivates you and what benefits come to you because the EP40 didn't see themselves as, they didn't see it as a justice argument. They really saw it as a, as a selfish argument. Okay, let's end with a return to America. We talked earlier about how the abortion, the not the, the the abortion debate is dividing America. Not that it wasn't already divided. There was an interesting piece in um, the FT recently, lunch with Hillary Clinton, in which she described Margaret Atwood as uh, the prophet. Uh, the prophet was actually on my show last year, the great writer, Margaret Atwood, Canadian writer, author of The Handmaid's Tale. Seems to be as if America's becoming two Americas. There's the America that will read your book, that will agree with everything you're saying in equal partners. Most men will try to become equal partners. Most of them will succeed 70, 80, 90% of the way. And then there's another America, which is living essentially in Atwood's Handmaid's Tale, an America where abortion is illegal, maybe contraception eventually will be illegal. What happens in that kind of America? How fearful should we be? As I said, you you are talking to me from Costa Rica. That's uh, where you live for, for the moment. So you have an interesting perspective on America, particularly also given that a lot of your research and your your work is focused on non-American society. Can America coexist as this two Americas, one of Kate Mangino's equal partners, the other of Margaret Atwood's Handmaid's Tale? I hope not. I hope not. I would love to get back. So, so I didn't ask specifically when I was interviewing the EP40, I didn't ask political affiliation, but a lot of it just came up in conversation and the information was offered to me. And I was interviewing these men during the Trump administration. And I can tell you that more than one of them was a Trump supporter and had voted for him. And at the same time, when I dug into issues, they were very open to gender equality. They were, they had chosen to live their life in an equal, in an equitable way with their female partner. And they would say to me, this is one issue, you know, I voted for for Trump, but this is one issue that I disagree with him on. And that surprised me, but it also reassured me in some way that, you know, perhaps that that statistic from Pew is a little bit too broad to mean something, but those conversations that I had did mean something. And I think that if we can stick to issues and depoliticize it as much as possible now, the abortion issue, impossible to depoliticize that. Um, and I will say I was, I've been waiting for more people to write on father's perspectives. NPR had an article out this morning, which I was happy to see. Um, and it was really on the economic argument, because I think that this is an issue that affects all Americans. And I think we need to hear from, from everyone. I think that men, 
I've heard people ask, should men have an opinion? Is it okay for men? I mean, yes, I think, of course, I would like to hear from fathers. I would like to hear from men who have gone through an abortion with a partner. Um, I think that this is, this is an important human right for all of us. I don't know if I answered Do you think you can have a cult of fertility in a society where we have equal partners? Or is the cult of fertility, which, of course, Atwood writes about in Handmaid's Tale, and which seems to be driving a lot of the anti-abortion movement, that that's incompatible with gender equality? I would agree with that. And I would say that... Agree with what? That you can't, that the two are incompatible? Yes. And I would say, however, that gender equality, I think, um, sorry, equal partnership and household divide is a less polarizing topic right now. And that could be a place for, to look for commonality, to change the conversation and shift it away from Roe v. Wade. I think that we need to, I mean, we all have our very specific viewpoints, but as many people that I can find and talk to and discuss this with and ask them questions and allow them to ask me questions and to say, you know, I can, um, I'm open to this. I'm open to this. Let's hear more about it. Let's talk about this more. Let me, I would like to know more about the benefits to men. I think just the more conversation and dialogue, the healthier we can be. I hope that's uh, not There you have it. Defiantly optimistic. Kate Mangino, equal partners, improving gender equality at home. We need that conversation, Kate. So congratulations on the new book. Um, what else should people be reading in addition to equal partners in, um, in late June 2022? I am, uh, I always appreciate reading about gender, but through a different lens. I always learn a lot that way. And so I'm really enjoying Jennifer Natalia Fink's book, All Our Families. Um, she talks about gender and she talks about racism, but she does it through um, a disability lineage lens, which is fascinating.